Welcome to Season 3 of Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a confidence life coach, comedian and mother of two. I invite you to join me bi-weekly for confidence tips and interesting chats with my guests who either work in fields that help develop confidence or who have had a personal story to share about their journey of breaking free and living with more confidence and purpose. My guest today is Hadil Marzouk, who in the summer of 2021 decided it was time for a drastic change. That change being that she would stop living for other people and start living for herself. And after a year of self-reflection and discovery, Hadil returned to education to pursue an MBA with a focus on social innovation. We talk about how she dealt with her depression, social anxiety and eating disorders when she began to listen to her own body and mind, as well as pursuing a passion in radio, which is where I first heard her and knew I must have her on my podcast to share her insights with you. Hi, Hadil. So happy you're on the show today. Hey, Danya. It's an honor and a privilege to be here, and I'm super excited to be talking to you today. I'm just as excited. I want to know about what is it that led to you deciding at such an early age as well? You know, usually it's after midlife crisis, I find, or after living your life for everyone and raising the kids and going through all of that and thinking, oh, my God, you know, what about me? But at very early age, you've decided that you need to live your life more for you and not for others. And how did that come about? Well, it's usually the typical life-changing sort of situation where a loss happens. So at this point, I was already living in Dubai. I had my job, I had my friends, and I thought I had my life. But at some point, I started, my mental health started deteriorating. And after a little while, what I realized is I was too stressed out about it. And the reason why I was stressed out is because I wanted to hide it from everybody else rather than I was stressed about the fact that it was happening. And then mm. a little while after that as well, I had lost some of my friends, not, not necessarily in, in death. They were, they're all still around, but I, they just decided that they wanted to not be a part of my life anymore and that they couldn't handle sort of who I was and, and what I brought. So that was the point, that was a turning point for me. I was grieving with, for them for so long. And then I realized that maybe it was just that I was trying so hard to be what they needed and what they wanted that it wasn't reflecting well, or I was, my mental health was deteriorating as um, a result of that or as one of the factors leading into that. And so that's when I decided that maybe I just need to stop putting that kind of pressure and start being more myself, doing more of the things that I want to do rather than the things that I believe will make people happy because I just had a, I just had this deep-seated need for them to like me. So that yeah. was the initial trigger. So you were being a people pleaser mm -hmm. and realized that as, as hard as you tried to please them, it was actually pushing them away. So there was no point in trying to please anymore and to go inwards and see what pleased you, which is a great insight to have early on. Some people can people please for all of their lives. I think it was the idea that I just realized early on that it caused a lot of stress. And I was very happy to be who people wanted me to be. I think I had always been like that since I was a kid. I'd always followed what my 
parents said I, I should do um, or, or how my siblings thought I should act, um, how my friends were and how I could fit in with them. I was always so concerned with fitting in and it made me happy when I did fit in. So it didn't really matter to me that I was just being a people pleaser. But after after this specific event happened, I realized that I can actually just be both if I figured out how to control that in the right way and how to make sure that I'm also safe. That's scary and upsetting when in the past being what people wanted you to be worked and now it wasn't working for you. You know, that's the one thing you know how to do and suddenly it's not working. They're rejecting you and and saying, we don't want to be around you when you're like this. How did you deal with that? Very badly at first. <laughs> it was um, it was a, a it was a lot of grief and a lot of loss and a lot of self blame. So one thing that I also realized after this experience is how self critical I am and how harsh I am, and how easy it is for me to forgive other people for things that I could never forgive myself for. Mm -hmm. So I think that was something that I realized because going straight into self-blame, but not having an answer as to what you did that pushed people away just made the uncertainty so much more and that caused blame from so many different angles. And so that's when I thought that um, just, just because of that happening, I started being very unhealthy. I started and, and, and un, unhealthy physically and mentally. I just lost that that drive to keep going. I started giving up. I stopped being functional entirely. And that's how I dealt with it. I was like, I'm just going to disappear and isolate myself and just not expose myself to other people because I didn't think I deserved to be exposed to good people and good relationships. Mm. Uh, because of how I was and the fact that I pushed people away so very badly at first and then more and more events and sort of the deterioration and then moving into severe depression and flaring and social anxiety and then eventually getting to a point where the eating disorder was also triggered I think those were the things that sort of caused me to rethink that part but I I can't claim that I dealt with it in the right way in the beginning at all. So I know that you learned some basic principles in stoicism um, of what to do when things are not in your control. What, what did you learn? So this is one of the books that was given to me very recently by a friend. It's called The Obstacle is the Way, and it, it explains the basic principles of stoicism and I realized that I had I hadn't heard of it much before. And it was so interesting to me because I've always stressed out a lot when things were not in my control. Mm. It just gave me the sense of loss and uncertainty and the sense that I couldn't be happy unless I had a hand in everything in my life. And so I think what it, what this book taught me specifically is that you need to learn how to very healthily let go of things that are that are brought onto you that you have no say in or no control in fixing or resolving and focus on the things that you do have control over, things that you can change, relationships that you can fix, things about you that you could improve. 
And in doing so, in focusing only on these things, the things that you could really actively change, you would be able to take your eye or take that sort of distract yourself a little from the things that you can't control and then eventually learn to let these go because there's everything is fixable and there's a solution to everything as long as you approach it in a specific way and that specific way is to break it down and restructure it break it down into what you can control what you can do in the moment what you can do in the long term and then what is definitely not feasible or impossible for you to have a hand in changing yeah. and then you take the things that you can do and then you break down break that down even further and so so can really you can on... you step back and think of a small simple example of how you managed to do that give me a problem that you had and how you broke it down into simple steps and realizing okay this is not in my control mm-hmm I think I'd like to go back to the eating disorder in terms of that. I think um, at the time, I wasn't necessarily applying those principles as something that I'd learned, but more of intuitively. Mm-hmm. And But I realized when I was reading the book that it was actually what I'd done before. I just hadn't known that there was a name to it, which is great as well. Um, but for for that one, it was a binge eating disorder. And it was more to fill a void in my life um, that I just could not fill myself. And what I realized is that I was just continuously eating and sort of uh, mostly unhealthy, exorbitant amounts of food, really decreasing my own physical health, my immune system. And it just led to a very dangerous point where my body was starting to shut down as a as a result. result of it. And so what happened is I just took a step back and I took a look at what it is that's driving the disorder specifically. And is it my emotions? Is it loneliness? Is it the fact that I don't have something that I'm looking forward to in life and I've lost interest in everything? And so mm-hmm. I put all of those right next to each other, all of those reasons that are these hypotheses that I had. And then I split them up into, okay, what can I change? And what can I not change? And what I couldn't change was how people felt about me, how people acted towards me, for example, yeah, the things that I got and that I didn't get rejections from job applications, for example, or uh, at the time I was applying for the MBA. And so rejections from that just general things that are brought onto me by other people and then what I notice is what I can change is things or aspects of myself and that includes for example I wanted to just do better for other people goes back to the pleasing people thing it just makes me so happy and but I wanted to do better without sacrificing myself and that I could completely control because I could make conscious decisions now on If I'm giving something, what can I give? How will it impact me? And I can decide not to give it or give something smaller or less or give in certain periods of time to different kinds of people, whether it's friends, family, even strangers and causes that I'm I'm very interested in or that 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 are very emotional to me, for example. So that was an aspect. 
that I took and that I actively started working on defining what can I do in my capacity, in my mental and physical capacity, and then how can I do it? And that's sort of something that I did. Yeah. Yeah. So you started coaching yourself and thinking, okay, let me focus fully on what I can make a change in Mm -hmm. and ignore the things that I can't make a change in because it's a waste of energy. Exactly. And, And that led you to deciding to to take the MBA? Yes, yes and no. I think the um, the original idea was to go back to studying. I didn't know what mm-hmm. I wanted to study, but I thought I would like to just go back to a time where I, I'm still doing something, but I am pivoting towards a new place, a new industry, a new way of life. And that's when I realized I would like to go back to do a master's. The MBA with a social, so for the focus, sorry, on social innovation is more about within my capacity, once again, going back to what I can control. My expertise is in business and technology. And so how can I use that to build something or to be a part of something that helps people? And I think what really drove that was me wanting to work in something or do something that I can really use to make a difference in at least one person's life. I think that was the the big goal. That was a big dream. I really wanted to at least have an impact on one person and then have them carry that forward. And I think the reason that's the reason why I chose the MBA is because I could start my my own business or meet people who are starting their own businesses and working in an environment where something like this is possible. Yeah. That's great. And and going back to you talking about loneliness, um, I know that you discovered there's a difference between loneliness and being alone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always been the kind of person who loves being alone. My sister calls me a extreme introvert because I just I I like spending time with myself. I like reflecting a lot. My favorite thing to do is maybe sit in a cafe with a book or my laptop, maybe just or not doing anything, just sort of observing people. Mm. And so I I do enjoy a lot of activities that I do by myself, but I also am an extremely lonely person. And the difference between these is when I'm alone, I choose to be alone. And it is an active decision that I take when I'm lonely. I could be alone or I could be surrounded by other people and people who I know love me, but I still don't feel like I belong in that space. And with those people, Mm -hmm. I still don't feel like I am understood and cared for or that I could be myself and say the things that I would like to say. And so that is the biggest difference between the two and loneliness and even in, in, as a scientific con or sorry, in relation to scientific concepts and psychology, loneliness is a very much a community and not being able to fit in and an exclusionary thing. Whereas being alone is something that you choose to do and that you're happy with and that you can train yourself to be happy with as well. Yeah. How do you deal with that now when you do feel lonely, that you're excluded or you're othered and you don't fit in? How do you deal with it now compared to how you dealt with it before, which drove you to depression and anxiety and eating disorders? I think before 
I would never let myself reach out to people or express my emotion to people. And that's what drove the loneliness into very unhealthy behavior. Mm. I think now how that's changed is once again, going back to what I can and can't control is I don't, I don't feel like I can control when and how lonely I feel and what it does to my mood, but I can control, for example, what I can do about it in the sense that sometimes I can tell that what I need right now is to sit by myself and just reflect on that, listen to some music. Music helps me a lot with the loneliness aspect because most of the time I've chosen music that where where the lyrics really reflect how I'm feeling about a specific situation or reflect mm. who I am as a person. And that makes me feel a little bit less lonely. It makes me feel a little more understood or that at least what's in my head is being said by someone out there in words um and sometimes I can't stand to be alone and so I've also had to let go of this hyper independence and force myself to reach out to people who I feel a lot of peace and comfort when I'm with some people who I genuinely feel like I can walk into a room where I don't know a single person but I could spot this person and go directly to them and they will always welcome me. And that mm. is, those are the people who I reach out to. There's very few of them, but they, they exist and they're out there. And I just try to surround myself with them and with their energy. Yeah. And so do you no longer fall into that trap of societal and familial expectations and realize it's not about you it's about them or it's about the culture that you were raised in how how has that differed for you it is less intense but I don't believe it's gone entirely Mm. I feel as someone who has lived longer being a people pleaser and doing what everybody else expected me including from from society to family having to live up to those expectations that I've done for most of my life this new direction that I'm headed in has is is very recent and so it's very difficult when you're coaching yourself to change inherent behaviors it's very difficult to not fall into the trap so there are still some days where I think you know maybe the business world isn't for me maybe I would like to go and start my own thing or maybe travel the world and work as as a nomad for example a digital nomad Um, and then I think about it for a minute and I'm like no but my family expects me to do this or society expects me to work with an MBA work with a degree um, do the nine to five live part of the corporate culture um, sort of have your side hustle all of these buzzwords that you hear but are very much true and I see people around me feeling that pressure and and putting that pressure on themselves and so it feels like I have to put that pressure and those expectations on myself as well and I think that the way that I've gone about it especially in the last six months where it's been such an intense environment of just expectations and pressures and within nine months 200 people have to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life almost right so that's something that I've had to this is this specific topic I've had to deal with very much over the last six months. And the way that I go about it is I have a very, very clear definition and transparent 
definition of what I want to do and what I don't want to do. It's almost a list. I have it written down somewhere in yeah. my room of what I want to do with my life and what I do not want. And every time I feel that I'm about to shift for reasons other than I want to do this and this is what makes me happy, then I stop myself. I'm, I just sort of take a step back or take some time off or maybe exclude myself from environments mm. that raise those pressures. So I would stop going to specific events or network with a specific, let's say, um, group of, of um, professionals that are in a specific industry that, for example, I might not want to work in, but I would be expected to work in yeah. um, or expected to want to work in, for example. Um, and so it, taking yourself out of a situation and knowing when to do that is one of the, the most important lessons I've learned when it comes to overcoming or not being a, not falling into the trap of societal and familial expectations. And so that that lesson in itself is something I want to emphasize. You just have Definitely. to have a very clear definition. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the same culture, so I know how difficult it is when the majority think one way. Um, but what you really notice is everyone's living to impress the generation's expectations before them and no one's living their own life. So someone has to break the cycle somewhere. And what I've learned is when you just keep that distance, don't don't include them in your every step. So mm -hmm. that they can't interfere and sort of change your mind or pressure you. And you just go ahead with what you're passionate about and what you believe in. When you succeed in it, then everybody is there clapping and cheering on and feeling proud. They just couldn't see what you could see when you knew that it was the right thing for you. But when you actually achieve success in whatever field it is, it's the success that they're looking for and proud of. The sad part is that love doesn't feel unconditional. It feels very conditional on, you know, how proud you can make them so that they can tell their friends and neighbors. I think that's the hardest part is really, we all want to feel loved unconditionally, whether we do what it is that makes them proud or what they like or what they can show off about or not. Um, and that's something that is needed to to find in your own self you know that own self love that own that own pride um and self worth so that it isn't reliant on on theirs like if i do this i get the love if i don't do this i don't get the love which is very much how we're brought up unfortunately um so exactly I, I think it's so wise that you've got these steps that you've already figured out you know good on you Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it takes it takes time. It takes time and training. And I worked with a lot of people. I don't I, I wouldn't like to take the credit all to myself. I think once you're willing to help yourself, that's an amazing first step. And that's mm. something that everybody needs to do. But it does take the help of another person, a professional. Yes. Ideally, initially. Yes. Right. And when you feel like you can take matters into your own hand, because I'm also a firm believer that it's not a one size fits all. And I know I understand that most therapists and experts also know that as well. Mm -hmm. But still, there are standardized methods of treatment that don't necessarily work for everyone. everyone. Mm. So it's really important to listen to yourself, listen to your body, and most importantly, self reflect, you know, just take the time 
to genuinely, this is not a joke. I, I stare at a wall sometimes. I don't even do anything. I'm just in bed and I'm staring at the ceiling and that's my self-reflection. Well, that's, that's meditation, that stillness. That's where you can can hear your higher self and tune in. And that's where the answers actually are, rather than in the busy brain that is giving you the same thing over and over, which gives you the same results. So that's why it's always good to either have that stillness, so you're getting answers in a different way from a different place within yourself, or to have the therapist... Um, or the coach seeing from the outside and giving you other possibilities, other perspectives for you to see instead of you going around in that same old circle um, of thinking the same way and coming up with the same solutions that don't actually work for you. Exactly. It's all a combination of different yeah. things that you need to try out. And some things could work for a little while and then they could stop working. And mm. that's not a reflection on your efforts. It's just a reflection on, Yes. Just the value of something that recedes over time. So yeah. that's also okay. And life is not linear as well, which is a really valuable lesson, I think, because you think, well, I know better now and I've moved forward. So how am I taking these two steps back? You know, I must be worthless and useless and maybe it was all for nothing and you're hard on yourself again. But yeah. that is how life is. It's up and down. And then when you get to a certain level, you're challenged again with something you never thought, you know, you'd be triggered about or have difficulty with so that you can up it a level and learn again and then move on and then it dips again and then you're on a high again. And once you realize that that is just how it is and it always will be, and that's part of learning, um, there's an acceptance instead of an, a resistance. And there's a wonderful calm and peacefulness that comes with that. Exactly. And I think I would really like to sort of bring this up as well and hopefully this helps other people too it's after that acceptance and that calm which is also a beautiful feeling in itself I think just a guiding principle because you will always have to self-improve and you'll always have to continuously be monitoring how you're feeling about certain things and I think that that's something that that will last forever and I think the three principles or let's say the the guidance rules that I also learned very recently that I think I want to keep going with is to first be honest, be honest about your feelings, be honest to yourself and to other people when and where you can without harming yourself or anyone else. Mm. Work hard, which is not just on what you do professionally on what you're learning, but just work hard on yourself and you'll have to, unfortunately, um, it's not, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to, to, just do once and stop. It's, it's something that continues forever. And then the final thing is to try to help others or try to raise others with you. And I know this is, again, once again, a very people-pleaser thing to say, but it we really discount how much value we add to people around us and how a very small and simple gesture could really change someone else and change sort of your attitude towards yeah. yourself and towards other people. Yeah. And so I think those are three very, very important things to consider yeah, too. They're beautiful. And if I may add one, mm. is to play, to have yes. fun, to play, to enjoy, you know, as much as working hard is important, I think to be playful and keep that young inner child um, alive is very, very important. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with that as well. Just presence in the moment and just enjoying yourself and enjoying your life because when everything, almost everything has a solution. If not, time will fix it almost. And that's something that I also believe in a little bit. So it's it's really important to just learn to be happy and do things that make yourself happy. That's true. Yeah. And I think that helps others without even thinking, you know, it's not hard work, but seeing someone joyful, someone smiling, someone with high spirits, positivity just makes you feel good and makes a ripple effect around you. Exactly. That's very true. Mm. So you mentioned music and how music helped, uh, music helped you. And that's what got me interested in you in the first place. When I heard you talking so passionately on Cambridge Radio about music and music therapy, and mm. you mentioned so many interesting facts about it. And I asked you, why have you not chosen to study what you're passionate about? And you told me when we had a phone call that you were would rather keep that as a passion that's separate and uh, work on radio and eventually have a podcast um, and then study what you're studying separately. Can you tell me a little bit why and talk to me more about how music helped you and what you know about music therapy? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the why is I made a conscious decision that this is I, I want to get my voice out there and I want to use my own stories and experiences and my personal learnings to help others in whatever way I can. It's all about finding someone who can relate to you in some way and maybe they can draw in from your experiences. And that's why just having my own voice out there did not feel like it was something that I could or I would want to at first sort of put out there as something to make money out of. I think if that happens eventually, that's always wonderful. But my point of this is I'm going to put my voice out there and see what happens and build a base and keep going and keep spreading awareness and reflection and hopefully good vibes to other people and, and see how that goes. And so that's something that that's why I decided to not necessarily study it or work in that field, but to do as something that is a passion so that it continues to stay a passion. I also didn't want to do it as a job because I do feel that that takes away from the fun and the inspiration and the 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 dedication behind it. Because when you're constantly trying to put out content, at some point, it may or may not get diluted. Um, at least that's what I I thought about that. And so I went the, the, the traditional route, let's say, of sort of studying something that I believe I'm good at mm -hmm. and that, you know, I could work in. So that's why I did. I studied economics and psychology. And then now I'm doing the MBA and focusing it, focusing it a lot on social impact because I do want to keep working on that. So just tell me how music has helped you. Do you have specific songs? I heard Joanna Lumley, actually, the actress, talking about this recently, how she has a specific song that is uplifting. I think it's uh, Mozart or Bach. It's, it's classical. And it's really joyful and it immediately puts her in a good mood. Whereas her husband, who's a composer... If he's feeling low and in a in a low mood, he'll listen to music that's similar to his mood to really take it to the fullest of feeling, you know, sad. 
rather than listen to something opposite. What do you do? Well, first I sit down and I sort of try to gauge not just how I'm feeling, but what I need in the moment. And I think knowing that is halfway through because like you said, you can listen to music that is the exact opposite of your mood, or you can listen to music that is that is very similar to your mood. And that somehow doesn't necessarily, being sad, listening to sad music won't necessarily make you sadder or sort of deepen that mood for you or harm you, which the sort of, this is for, for some people not and not for others, of course, but sometimes it could just give you that space to reflect and to listen to the lyrics and understand what the the artist is saying and then bring yourself out of it so that by the time the song is done you're like okay I've processed I've processed those emotions and that's that's what I do for example Mm. so music music therapy is something that I learned on my own and I combined it with what I was doing with a therapist Um, and it's just because sound to me fills my brain and I have I usually have a lot of noise in my brain and so anything that can take all of that noise away all at once is exactly what I need. Mm. I think it's really healthy that you have learnt what tools help you, what album to listen to, what wall to stare at, what ceiling to stare at, you know what I mean? You know how to step back or or who not to mix with, what not to follow or not to look at when you're feeling triggered. These are things that coaches are usually helping people to, you know, develop those tools and know what works for them. And you found them for yourself. I, I know you've had help as well, like you said, but it's great that you know what works for you and you've had that reflection self-reflection enough to know where to go to to have a release you know to release that emotion so that you can go back to the balance that you want um what i loved was you talking about drill music it, it caught my attention when you're on the radio show saying that you know drill artists have been attacked a lot for their kind of music um and so I looked up who drill artists are. And honestly, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't heard of any of these names except for Kanye West. And, <laughs> who is sort and of Nicki Minaj. <laughs> who, very, yeah. very, very much on the outskirts of drill music. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he's a mild, mild version of it. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of like Digger D and uh, Lil Dirk. There's a lot of Lil's. Um, mm-hmm. Let me find some more Lil's in a minute. Lil Bibby, <laughs> Lil TJ. Dig that. I like the names. But anyway, what I what caught my attention was when you said that they did an experiment to take the same exact lyrics and put it to country music and mm-hmm. people didn't, you know, bat an eyelid. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so also full disc- full disclaimer here. I I listen to drill rap. So it's 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 the I actually was very surprised to discover what I did about it in terms of people attacking it or the fact that it may incite violence. I see how it does. I see yeah. how the nature of the lyrics does. So I, for example, I listen to it when I'm at the gym. It just excites me. It motivates me. It feels very powerful and so it gets me going. Mm. It like and, and and just, you know, it really helps. But uh, I think in terms of the experiment specifically, that was a commentary on rap music in general and how people perceive it in a very negative way due to its history and due to 
who it's been associated with. And yes, the lyrics do describe violent tendencies or maybe um, just necessarily words that aren't 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 very. I don't know, widely accepted within social norms of how someone is expected to behave, for example. Yeah. Whereas, you know, mm. and on the opposite side, country music, um, it's always been associated with, I don't know, love or playfulness or cheerfulness or something Wholesome like people. Wholesome people. Wholesome people, right? Yeah. Exactly. But it's exactly. funny that back in the day, not long ago, they also saw the Beatles or Elvis Presley as a threat, you know, with... Yeah. With seeing young people just going crazy and screaming and throwing things at them and being obsessed with them, it also scared, you know, a previous generation of what is this music doing to our children? Exactly, exactly. I think it's more of people can also sort of afford to take a step back and think about what, what is this music doing to our children, but is it a good thing or is it a bad thing or is it something that it's not something that they can control necessarily. Mm. People will put out this kind of music all the time and they can't force their children not to listen to it, but it's about educating people on how to process what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what they're absorbing on yeah. a daily basis generally, yeah. whether it's music or anything else. You know, I think it's the heavy swearing that I, I can't imagine yeah. putting those lyrics in a country song and us not noticing because of the swearing. (laughs) Exactly. So I'd be really interested to hear that. But um, I mean, I was being hypocritical not long ago with my daughter and the music she was listening to. I mean, I didn't stop her from listening to it, but I'd say, my God, what did he just say? (laughs) What did she just say in that? And then I was listening back to, to what I used to listen to at 13, 14, 15. And Alanis Morissette said far worse Mm. stuff, actually, in the songs that I was singing out loud than what my daughter's listening to. So I was like, wait a minute, you know, what am I <laughs> preaching when I was listening to that? I, I'd totally forgotten about the lyrics that were in it. So yeah, I think we can judge because it has more of a like gangster feel maybe, or mm-hmm. it seems to feel more hardcore maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think when you also think about it, how many of us use swear words in our daily lives I would say even especially younger generations now it's almost like the the language yeah it's part of the language it's part of the vocabulary it's you don't even we don't even take it seriously when we're talking to each other right yeah and so yes it's inappropriate let's say if 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 you're in a professional setting maybe even even then sometimes you know not to out people but even during meetings you know you you chuck out a word or two. And so it's just about also realizing what's becoming normalized for a generation outside of your own or for someone that you really care about who might be younger or older. And so understanding the norms of their people, their generation or their friends or their cohorts as well is really important. Yeah. Well, Hadil, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about so many various different things. I really wish you a bright, bright future. I see a bright future ahead of you because, you know, what you have realized and changed for yourself at such an early age um, gives you that head start that a lot of people haven't had. And what you're studying and what you hope to do with a podcast and and your knowledge of music therapy, I'm sure, will touch a lot of people and change a lot of lives. 
and I really look forward to seeing where the future takes you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniacurdy.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.